Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute. Uh, my name is John Lanchowski. I'm president of the Institute, and I am just delighted to be able to welcome a distinguished speaker who has gone come here from very far away and gone through all sorts of uh, bureaucratic challenges, having had his passport stolen and having had to get a, uh, a replacement for it in the 11th hour with complete uncertainty as to whether this event would take place. So I'm very, very happy that you all are here at a, what is not necessarily the most convenient time of the day for everyone. So, um, but we are live streaming this uh, to an audience around the nation, and uh, we will be keeping it up on our YouTube site for uh, in, indefinitely. So, let me, uh, for those of you who are new to the Institute, you should just be aware we are not a think tank. We are an independent graduate school. We have uh, five master's degree programs. We have a doctoral program that we just started this year. Our faculty is composed of scholar practitioners, uh, ambassadors, military officers, intelligence officers, uh, people who have been involved in uh, democracy building, foreign assistance, uh, cyber uh, statecraft, and so on. People who have done what they teach. And uh, a large part of our mission here is to improve the professionalism of, of the different arts of statecraft, the different instruments of national power, and particularly our students and our foreign policy community's capacity for integrated strategic thinking. Um, we are particularly pleased to have Yoram Hazoni here today with us, who has come all the way from Jerusalem. Yoram is president of the Herzl Institute, and he's the author of a new book uh, called The Virtue of Nationalism. It, is, uh, it has just been released, is that correct? It's just been published? Four weeks now, okay. And uh, it is an extraordinary analysis uh, that, that focuses on the legitimacy of nationalism. Uh, and, 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 and from my point of view, you know, we here at IWP are not an advocacy organization. We do not promote policies, but we are concerned about the the, the different instruments and, and mechanisms and philosophies that augur to the, uh, the the effectiveness of our national security policy. And one of the things that is absolutely vital in, in any national security effort is national unity even in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional country such as our own. And uh, I believe that, that, uh, that the, the secret to the long-term success of our ability in, in America and the success of so many other countries in their security efforts it, it lies in, in their ability to maintain some kind of cohesion, some kind of unity. Uh, and and, and it, I believe it is possible to do this without uh, nationalism being uh, chauvinistic, exclusivistic, 
intolerant, and so on. I believe it is possible to create uh, a national unity that is morally <coughs> ordered and, 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 and inclusive. And, and so uh, Yoram uh, has, has issued now an analysis which is really uh, contrary to so much of the conventional thinking in this business. And, uh, and, and I think it's a very, very welcome addition to scholarship and all, with huge implications for public policy. Yoram's other books include The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture uh, and the Jewish State, The Struggle for Israel's Soul. Uh, so those are two, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture and The Jewish State, The Struggle for Israel's Soul. His essays appear frequently in the Wall Street Journal, the, the New York Times, and other media. Um, and he has recently written articles on what is conservatism, the dark side of the Enlightenment, and Jordan Peterson and conservatism's rebirth. Yoram, the, the floor is yours. We are honored and delighted to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, John, for the warm welcome and for having me. Um, I have to confess that uh, um, when, I, when I wrote The Virtue of Nationalism, I thought that I would be um, uh, writing something explosive that would kick up a storm. And uh, flying into the United States, I've uh, discovered that uh, the United States is facing uh, possibly the greatest storm of the century on the southern coast, and at the same time, possibly the greatest storm of the century in Washington. These are two different storms. Uh, and so I find myself in an unaccustomed and odd position uh, in that it may be my job not to uh, stir up more trouble, but to try to calm things, um, which as I say, I'm not so used to doing. I don't know whether I'm going to be particularly good at it, uh, but it may be that um, that the effect of what I have to say will, in, in fact, contri contribute to calming things. Let's give it a try. So um, this morning, uh, Americans uh, are debating civility. The question of whether it is true or not that one cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what one stands for. Now, I, I hope it goes without saying, but apparently it doesn't, so I'll say it anyway, that most political parties want to destroy what, what the other party stands for. That's the, the reason that there exist political parties. And the, uh, the unwritten agreement, sometimes written, sometimes not, among political parties uh, in democratic countries is that much as they may detest one another and what one another stand for, there are things that are more important than winning this battle or even the next 10 battles or maybe even the next 100 battles. Uh, we, we, we in Israel had uh, a single party that governed uh, for from 1948 until 1977, that means that uh, those who
who disagreed with labor's positions for the first 30, 40 years of the country had to be in opposition for decades, for an entire generation. And yet the position that one takes if one is going to live in a democracy is that even though you think that the other side is, going, is trying to destroy what you believe in, nevertheless, it's more important to place the nation first for everyone, for everyone involved. Otherwise, it can't work. It can't be that one party thinks so and the other parties don't. It has to be an agreement that everyone comes to. Now, I've said the word, uh, the word nation. And what I'm going to propose is that a worldview that is focused on the nation, that is based on the nation, in fact holds the key to this kind of civility, to this kind of tolerance, to this kind of democracy. In other words, I'm going to propose that nationalism, so often reviled and derided, actually holds the key to being able to have a civil and tolerant society. That without nationalism, without the agreement among the different parties who may detest one another, that the nation comes first and above other aspirations and things, without that, you will not be able to have a civil society, you will not be able to have a democracy. Now, I, I want to do a little bit of uh, uh, history and a little bit of philosophy. I'm going to try to do this real quick. And so it'll be too simple, for which I apologize in advance. And then in question and answer, you can call me out on it, and then I'll apologize again, and we'll, we'll tighten things up a little bit, hopefully. Henry Kissinger wrote a wonderful book a few years ago called World Order, which is kind of a, uh, if I may say so, kind of a summation of uh, many, many volumes and many, many decades of, uh, of, of his work. In some ways, this is his most uh, accessible work, and in some ways, it's his most ambitious because it's an attempt to synthesize. And in it, Kissinger speaks about 1648, about the uh, the Westphalia Treaties and the, the peace that, that, uh, that came about at the end of the Thirty Years' War. He speaks about the Westphalia Treaties as the end of, quote, an era of contending universalisms. In other words, his view of these treaties is that what took place, although it doesn't say this in the treaties, he's retroactively looking at it, what took place in the mid-17th century was a decision on the part of the leadership of, of Europe that even though it might be that the Catholic armies were trying to destroy everything that, or much, that the Protestants stood for, and vice versa, that nevertheless it would be best for Europe if they would allow for a new order that order had been building for some time. England was independent uh, already in 1534, and uh, the Netherlands declared its independence in, in, in 1581. This had been building for a while, but, but the Westphalia Treaties create this, this new formal legal concept of national independence in, in the sense that all the powers agree that the Netherlands are now going to be an independent nation. They're no longer going to be part of uh, a universal uh, Austro-Spanish Catholic empire. They're going to have 
their own independence. They're going to be able to determine for themselves their own constitutional and religious faith. And the fact that they may be uh, um, deplorable from someone else's perspective is not itself going to be a cause for war any, anymore. Kissinger's argument is that if you look earlier and you look at the ambition of the Holy Roman Empire to, uh, to create a Christian republic that will span the entire earth, or the ambition of, uh, the, uh, uh, of the Ottoman Empire as the caliphate to create a single Muslim uh, 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 ummah, country, nation, that will cover the entire earth, that as opposed to these con contending universalisms, there's going to be a willingness to accept that the world may remain divided indefinitely among nations that have different religious views, different constitutional views, different economic systems, different approaches to freedom, and so on. Nationalism, we may say, is born with England's Declaration of Independence, and it's ratified, the nation-state system is ratified as the, uh, uh, the, the new political order in, in the West, later in the world, at this point. So when I speak of nationalism, I speak of that. I speak of a principled view that sees the world as governed best when nations are permitted to pursue their own course independent of the intervention of others. That means that other nation, that nationalism uh, implies, requires a recognition that others will do things differently from us. They will have different values from us. They will have a different constitutional system. They will have a different conception of rights. They will have a different conception of what brings, what brings religious salvation, of what brings political salvation. And I say that that proposal, that the world is governed best when, when nations are willing to recognize that, that that is a tremendous step forward for mankind. Now, I rush to say that this is not a utopian proposal. Right? It's, not a do it's not a dogma. There is no way, as far as I know, to uh, mathematically and absolutely determine where all the boundaries should be and who exactly has a right to independence and who doesn't. There is no way to come up with a permanent um, solution to war uh, on this basis. What it does is it seeks to, to, it campaigns in fact, it seeks, it campaigns to try to get as many nations as possible to renounce the opposite of nationalism, which is imperialism. And by imperialism, I mean any kind of a political worldview that would, 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 would approach the political order by saying, the wor no, the world is actually governed best when we strive as much as we possibly can to bring all the world, as much as we possibly can, under a single law, a single regime, in order to attain peace and prosperity. Now, I don't claim that that view, which is an ancient view, it's, uh, we, we know it from the Roman Empire, but it's much older than that. We know it from, from the Bible. We know 
the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire and the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptians, all of them had a view of this kind that said the gods sent me, the king, to conquer the four corners of the earth. This is what we, we find on, on those uh, clay tablets that you dig up in the Middle East. The gods sent me to conquer the four corners of the earth in order to bring peace and prosperity, in order to suppress all those unnecessary wars and to keep the millions of people alive, working peacefully, uh, increasing the, 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 uh, the yield of agriculture and, and keeping mankind from starvation and devastation, plague and war. That's, that's the unifying vision of virtually every empire, every empire that, I've, that I'm familiar with historically. And the Bible, the prophets, they put a different vision on the table, which if you like it, you think it's this heroic and wonderful thing. And if you don't like it, then you, you, you grit your teeth and say, why is this biblical vision continuing to haunt us to this day? They put something else on the table and they say, no, Israel, God's people, are going to live within borders, and God says that he, he, will, he will, in fact, punish them if they try to cross their borders and conquer the neighbors. The God of Israel is the first God, as far as we know, ever to command his own people to live within borders and to not conquer the neighbors. And if you think about it, it's really quite incredible. God, creator of heaven and earth, talks to Moses, and even though we presume that, you know, this God probably thinks that, uh, that he knows what's good for the entire earth, he gives Moses responsibility for only a single small territory and commands him to leave everybody else alone. Because I, I God, have given uh, the, the, the land of Edom to the Edomites and so on. So this is a very old argument, nationalism versus imperialism. And I say that the, the experiment, and it's certainly not been an experiment that's worked in every way, but the experiment beginning in the, in the 1500s and the 1600s in Europe to take this biblical vision of a world of independent nations and actually apply it, that it's done us a lot of good. It hasn't solved all of our problems but it has created the possibility for a world of experiments. And if you try to figure out where do the kinds of things that Americans uh, like in political life, where do they come from? Um, limited government, uh, rule of law, a respect for the, uh, the rights of the individual, uh, a, a, a concept of, um, uh, of uh, a rotating political parties, which is in, 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 in fact a kind of shared government among people who, who may really, really not like one another very much. All of these principles are, uh, and, and I should add the, the, the free market, we can keep going. All of these principles arise within the framework of Western European national states, and particularly those who are excited by the Old Testament, by the Hebrew Bible, and by, by, by Protestantism, which wants to take that and implement it. It's in uh, Holland, in England, in Scotland, among the Swiss, uh, among the, the, the French Protestants, that we find the development of all of these different kinds of rights that are familiar to us. All of them are descended from a nationalist experiment. 
an experiment by people who say, we're different. We have different traditions. Our traditions here in Holland, they're different from those of the Spanish. Read the, 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 the Dutch Declaration of Independence. And you'll see they say, our, our, our traditions are different from those of the Spanish. We want the right to be able to pursue them ourselves and see where they go. John Stuart Mill, among others, argued that, that it's the variety of nations which has made Europe so advanced. The fact that, Europe, that, nations, that European nations have been diverse, that they allow each other to do different things. And in a, in a time when uh, diversity is touted almost everywhere as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a key value, it's astonishing that people don't easily come to the conclusion that if diversity is a value, then surely the idea of diversity of nations, that different nations have different ways, different constitutions, different traditions, that they, that they should be permitted to pursue them, that that idea is reviled and considered to be dangerous. Where does the trouble come from? Why, why, why is it not obvious that we should allow nations their independence? Well, it seems that even in America, which began as uh, a classic national state with, uh, with the argument that it, it has its own, uh, its own special traditions and its own unique way of approaching life, and that it should not be ruled by some foreign empire. Right? Even, even in America, in recent decades, uh, many have been bitten by the bug of saying not that Americans have a wonderful way of life, or even that Americans perhaps have the best way of life, but that Americans have the best way of life and that this way of life is so obviously maybe even self-evidently the best way of life, that it wouldn't hurt to go about making sure that everyone on earth shares in this way of life. I understand that's a difficult tradition for many. I mean, sorry, a difficult transition for many. But I'll push the point anyway. We all know that imperialism did not end with Catholic imperialism, or, or uh, Islamic uh, uh, imperialism. We have all sorts of imperialisms in the modern age that are, that are not those traditional imperialisms. Most recently, we had Marxist imperialism. We had Nazi imperialism. And make no mistake, the Nazis also had a view of how the entire earth should be ordered so that it would be for the best for mankind. It's also, sick as it is, a political salvation theory for the world, just like communism is. Now, there are other forms of political salvation creed, and they may be nicer. If I have to choose between, uh, between uh, the, the liberalism of my, uh, my, my friends who want to see the entire world brought under liberal order, if I have to choose between that and a communist imperialism, not to speak of a Nazi imperialism, then I don't have any question whose side I'm on. I don't have any problem saying that my, my friends that, who want to impose 
a liberal world order on the planet. They are my friends. I respect them. I know they mean well. And nevertheless, I think that their ambition is foolish and destructive. John Stuart Mill, who's often, uh, often accused of imperialism, and for good reasons, um, writes something remarkable about uh, British rule in India at the end of his uh, considerations on representative government. Read the last chapter. Almost nobody ever reads it. He argues that there is no chance for anyone in England ever to know what's good for, for India. People don't have time. The truth is they don't really care. But even if they do care, they don't have any possible way of knowing the actual things that the, the, the people in India truly need. And this is, this, is, this is someone who spent his life in close contact with, uh, with this. He's speaking from experience. It's not a theoretical point. He says, as a matter of empirical fact, no one in England actually knows what, what people in India really need. They don't actually know what their real problems are. And they don't have any way of knowing them. And if they try to find out, Mill argues, then what happens is that they'll talk to certain people in India who represent certain perspectives, who represent certain parties, who represent certain interests, and they'll believe that they understand what's going on in India, but they still won't understand what's going on in India. And so the only chance of actually having the good of the people of India taken care of is if somehow you could get to a situation where the people of India would get to determine it. As long as the people of England are doing it, you have no chance. And as if this argument were not sufficient as a piece of theory, I think it's a pretty good piece of theory, um, as if it weren't sufficient, today we have the European Union reenacting the entire experiment in real time, in real life. And they, they, they did the whole works. They, 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 uh, they, they, they erased all of the traditional buildings and kings and queens from the currency and put, put, replaced it with a currency that has fictitious buildings that don't exist anywhere so that you don't, so, so that the, nobody should suspect that there's any kind of particularism involved. And still, it turns out that there's particularism in, involved. I don't think anyone who's a fair observer thinks that anything is happening in Europe other than that it is a liberal German empire in embryo. And if you doubt that, and you think that I'm speaking too strongly, then ask the Greeks, or ask the Italians, who just had their, their attempted to, to democratically elect a finance minister, and had their finance minister vetoed from, uh, from uh, uh, Berlin, uh, or I mean Brussels. Ask the English. I mean, there's some English who, who uh, are, are on the other side of the argument, but I think that there are plenty of English who still remember that the fount of Western freedom is in England. There's some who still remember that, uh, that the Germans and the French don't necessarily know what, the, what, what is good for the English, what, what makes good law for England. There's some who still remember, and maybe it's a majority in England. Now, we do not have any example of a democratically elected empire. 
We don't have one. We don't have an example of anything that you would call a liberal empire except for maybe Napoleon's empire. I mean, you, you could call it liberal in, in, in all sorts of senses. I mean, he was trying to implement his understanding of Voltaire and Rousseau and so on. So you can call it liberal in a sense, but it's not liberal in the sense that Americans mean when they say liberal, it's still a, it's, it's, it's still a, a dictatorship. We don't have a single example of an empire that is governed democratically. And there's a reason for it. The reason for it is that in order for there to be democracy, and I, now I, I come back to the, my, the beginning of my remarks and here I'll stop. In order for there to be a democracy, there has to be a mutual loyalty among the people in the democracy. They have to be willing to make painful sacrifices in order for their, uh, for the dem democracy to proceed. And under what conditions is that possible? Under what conditions is it possible for a king to say, I will give rights, I will respect the rights of my subjects, even though that might, may endanger my throne? <coughs> under what conditions is it possible for one party to say, we'll allow the other party to rule for the next four years or 12 years or 30 years, even though that may destroy what we stand for? Under what conditions is it possible? Now, I say to you that empirically, not, not just, you know, we, we, we worked it out philosophically on paper, but empirically, as a matter of experience, it only happens where you have a nation. Now, a nation may have, almost always has, multiple tribes. It's diverse internally. There's no such thing as a homogenous nation. This is nonsense. I mean, this is pe pe people who, who want to learn political theory from Hitler, then they'll say, okay, a homogenous nation, a pure nation. But if you're not insane, and you, you talk about actual nations, there's never been a homogenous nation. Every nation, every successful nation with which we're familiar, the Jews, the Greeks, the Dutch, the English, the Americans, every single, the, the Swiss, every single one of these nations is, is diverse internally. None of them are homogenous. But what they do have, and this is not a matter of some subjective feeling, it's an objective thing. What they do have is a mutual loyalty that binds them. Now, how does that mutual loyalty come into existence? Good question. Right? I, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to me that our political theory departments, our political science programs, or the other programs that, are, that ought to be studying this are, are sufficiently interested in this question. I'm not sure that I know the answer. But in fact, there is such a thing as mutual loyalty. Mutual loyalty means we're willing to fight and fight and fight and fight. You know, like you know, a husband fights with his wife. Parents fight with their children. Nobody gives up their individuality to be in a marriage or to live in a family with parents and children. They fight and they bicker and they contend. But when they're threatened from the outside, everybody comes together as one and they feel what the others are feeling as though it's happening to themselves. This is an empirical fact. And families can unite together as tribes. And tribes can unite together as nations. Now, these are real entities that actually exist. 
We know what it's like because we're watching America destroy its mutual loyalty right now. So we can look back. Only a few years ago, we can all remember it to a period where it was not absurd for people to be civil to one another because being American and the good of America was more important than a particular party agenda. No matter how much we hated the other side, we can all remember it still. But we're watching it dissipate. John spoke about cohesion. That, that's another wonderful word, word from John Stuart Mill. Sidgwick also uses it. Cohesion means mutual loyalty. That people may fight and hate one another even. But when it comes to seeing the destruction coming, the enmity coming, then they pull back and they say, you know what, you're my brother. You're all my brothers and sisters. And that too is nationalism. To say on the one hand, our nation is independent from all others. On the other hand, in order to maintain that independence, which is extremely difficult to do, in order to maintain that independence, we're going to accept the diversity of, of opinions among us. We're going to accept the diversity of tribes among us. Acceptance is not sufficient. There's going to have to be something that's going to unite the people. And that unity, since that unity is never based on race, it's going to have to have something to do with traditions, maybe a shared language, shared religion, maybe shared enemies, certainly a shared past of working together to overcome adversity. And those things have to be enforced and reinforced and reinforced, or the nation will cease to be a nation and it will cease to exist. And that too is nationalism. What I propose for Americans, oddly enough, is that the United States right now is suffering for, for, from insufficient nationalism. It's suffering from a belief that its ideas need to be spread to everyone in the world. When in fact, the most important thing, establishing who and what America is and tying it together tightly for future generations, that most important thing is in fact, that, that thing is in fact what's, what, what, what's, what's missing. Americans really need to turn it inward. Isn't that strange to say? I don't mean to, to ignore the rest of the world. But can't you see? Can't you see that America really needs to be um, taken care of uh, by the best people that it has right now? And um, frankly, people in the rest of the world know this too. You can't go to Iraq or Yugoslavia or the Ukraine or any place else and say, you should be just like America. If they look at America and they say, what are you talking about? You're not holding together what you have. I'm not saying that Americans don't have what to teach others. Of course they have what to teach others. But right now, the most important thing is to put America back together again. And I think that nationalism is a virtue neglected and not sufficiently discussed that strangely enough may hold the key. Thank you.
Hello, thanks so much for your talk, sir. Uh, my name is Stephen Tapp, the graduate of Georgetown. And um, I, uh, I was going to ask, um, if, you look at, um, if you look at the 19th century, you know, uh, we kind of call it the age of nationalism in a way, because we first started using that term. You have all these different countries consolidating and very vibrant cultural traditions and, you know, people developing their music, their sense of languageness and uh, their sense of language and togetherness and all those things you were talking about that are really benign if they're treated right. You know, um, that doesn't look like such a bad world, really, by, you know, compared to the next century. And, I mean, and it seems like, well, even the, the fighting and the, uh, uh, the rivalries were carried out on a much more sort of benign, civilized level than they were in the following century. I mean, no one was talking about mass extermination of each other or, you know, when they have their war, they sit down around a conference table, they draw some lines, and then they all go off to a ball and wearing pretty much the same clothes and, you know, really no hard feelings. So what was it that sort of changed about nationalism from drawing the line from that period to, you know, what the uh, founders of Israel were running away from, you know, in the late 1940s? And uh, what changed uh, that? And if something changed or if it didn't, does that reflect on kind of the underlying nature of nationalism and something we have to be concerned about. Very good questions. Um, I'll begin by, uh, I'd like to begin by, by objecting to the, uh, to, the, to the academic habit of declaring uh, the 19th century to be the age of nationalism. Um, th there's a peculiar habit this is, I mean, it's not just nationalism studies. Academia, for reasons that are not yet clear to me, um, likes to claim that every political phenomenon of interest began with the French Revolution. And uh, you can find this in discipline after discipline, and it, it, it completely uh, mangles um, many disciplines, and nationalism studies is just one of, one of them. Uh, nationalism... You cannot be understood without, uh, without focusing on the, the new idea of national independence. And it's not exactly a new idea because it's, ancient Israel was not the only independent nation in the ancient world. You can find uh, 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 all, all, all sorts of others in the Bible and thereafter. But the modern concept of the legitimacy of national independence which is, in fact, what we celebrate on the 4th of July. Right? What, are the, what are these church bells and barbecues about? What they're about is this new idea of the legitimacy of an independent nation that does not have to answer to the Holy Roman Empire and does not have to answer to, to the British Empire and does not have to answer to the Pope. And that, that idea, to begin with, to understand it, I think you, you, you have to look at it, you have to look at its... Uh, entire spread when you get to the 19th century, you're looking at um, European peoples imitating imitating the, the Dutch, the English, and the Americans, and so on. And that imitation uh, has all sorts of peculiar twists to it. One of the twists that's strange about continental nationalism as it tries to imitate uh, the, uh, the 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 Anglo-American nationalist tradition. One of the things that's strange about it is that it gets mixed up with 
uh, with uh, with a, a utopianism. Uh, I mean, if you read Mazzini and so on, I mean, he's a very you know he's he's a nice man and all, but he actually thinks that that he's about to bring peace to the earth. Uh, so that European nationalism is is mixed up with a utopianism, uh, a, a willingness to, to come up with utopian schemes and then attempt to implement them. And those things are ine inevitably lead to fanaticism. I don't, I don't mean that I'm giving you, you know, the entire answer to the story. It's just the beginning. But the beginning of an answer is that, um, that the kind of nationalism that I'm describing, which I'm associating with, uh, especially with Western Protestantism, especially with the English and the Americans and the Scots and so on, that kind of nationalism is very much, on my reading, um, loyal to the biblical view that to be a nationalist is to say, I'm going to care about my people and other peoples will take care of themselves. And I leave them alone and they, they leave me alone. That's the aim. As soon as you start turning it into a universal doctrine, then it becomes like all other universal doctrines, which is people who get too excited about it, then start thinking that the, the, the right thing to do, the only moral thing to do is to impose it on everybody. And as soon as you start thinking that the only right thing to do is to impose it on everybody, then you're not a nationalist anymore. Then you've crossed the, the line into imperialism, whatever you call yourself, and you start doing awful things. So I had the good fortune of um, pre-ordering and getting your book four weeks ago, I guess, and um, had the opportunity. Thank you. you know, I mean, I was quite eager to read it, and I've had the opportunity because when I'm reading something and I'm really interested, I, you know, I want to talk to people about it. And so I've been talking to a lot of different kinds of people, you know, about some of the sort of you know, your insights and, and messages. And I, my background is that I came, I grew up in rural Kentucky. And uh, I'm still in touch with a lot of family and friends from back back in Kentucky and other, you know, other places in what they call flyover country now. And then, but I've been here in Washington for what 25 years, and my social circle here is more I don't know what you call it, like a elites, uh, sort of technocrats. So, but in both cases, people who are quite diverse politically, Democrats, Republicans, strongly aligned, not strongly aligned. And what's struck me is that my friends outside of the sort of Washington elite, like the, the messages really resonate. And I'm, and I'm not just talking, you know, it's not just Trump voters, right? It's like uh, people from all over the political sort of spectrum. You know, it just it sort of resonates, uh, many of the messages anyway. And then, but when I talk to my friends in Washington, again, Republicans, Democrats, you know, Trump supports it. Just not like it's it's you know they, they just have this very strong you know some of it's being an economist which um, I think gives you a certain ideology you know sort of institutions that can support a market sort of seem like they should be good enough to support everything that you want in a society. But I, I was just wondering you know sort of observation about where you're finding uh, more take up or not with your, your sort of what you're saying in your book. The, the harder to reach, the, the harder to 
Well, my, my observations are, are pretty similar to yours. Um, and it's, it's not just true for the United States. It's, it, it's true in the UK and it's true in Israel. And it, it appears to be true in, in, in various European countries as well that, um, that people who go to university, especially people who spend a lot of time in university, the more time you spend in university, the more you think that um, someone if, if, it's, if you're in America, then you, 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 call, you say it's Locke. If you're in Germany, you say it's Kant. But some, some universalist rationalist thinker uh, came up with a really, really simple answer for bringing peace and salvation to the entire planet, and why don't we just listen? That's, um, I, I almost want to say that, that, I almost wanna say that, that that just is the doctrine of academia. Of course, that's too simple, because academia has as anyone who's an academic knows, is actually a, a civil war between two competing universalist salvation theories, the neo-Marxist one and this Lockean one, and they, they fight with one another. But most of the people that, that we know and love in, uh, in Washington and other, um, uh, uh, other urban centers, highly educated people, elites, as you say, are people who just simply spent way, way too much time um, reading a particular incredibly narrow set of thinkers uh, who described uh, the foundations of economics reasonably well and were wrong about virtually everything else. And um, This is not the case at IWP. <laughs> and of course, there are certain institutions which stand almost alone against the tide heroically. Um, but very few, and you should do what you can to assist them, especially, you know, be generous, right? Um, no one told me to say that. I simply know that it's the case. Um, but to, to, to get back to your question, so I, I'm not saying all uneducated people have a natural tendency to think the right things, which is to say the things in my book, because I actually don't think that's true. I actually think that, that uneducated people around the world have a very great diversity of views on things, but you're talking specifically about, about Americans who have not been destroyed by uh, academia. And they have maintained traditions, whether they know it or not, right? whether, they, whether they go to church or not, whether they, they you know, know how to articulate it. They are continuing to, uh, to uh, intuit to feel, to sense things that are handed down from their ancestors. I'm not saying it can't be destroyed, it may disappear, but it's still there. And what I try to do in the book is to, is to put a name on it. The, the name is, it's a, it's a worldview that's a kind, it's a kind of Old Testament oriented Protestantism, right, which is very, very different from uh, uh, let's say German German Lutheranism, which which is also Protestant, but but it is is much much more New Testament oriented. This is an Old Testament oriented Protestantism, which because of its interest in the Old Testament, is has a very strong sense of what the nation is. The 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 the, the Hebrew Bible. If you open, forget the Hebrew. I mean, of course, you should all learn Hebrew, but until you do. Take the King James Bible and just do a, a, a search for nation and people. You'll find that there are thousands of uses, uses uh, uh, instances of nation and people 
in the King James Bible, and they, they describe a particular kind of thing, that A, this nation is the center of political life, B, it's your highest loyalty other than God, C, it's, um, it, 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 it's, it's composed of tribes, D, it's not based on race. Right? Ruth the Moabites becomes uh, 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 an Israelite by saying, your, your people is my people and your God is my God. People who have, have this, these intuitions handed down, they have what I consider to be a very, very healthy sense of let's worry about our people. Let's, let's take care of our people, the entire people. Right? And it doesn't have to be about race. I mean, this is one of the worst things about the United States right now is, is on all sides that we're constantly talking about skin color. And I don't know if you remember, 30 years ago it wasn't like that. It's, it's very, very, um, it's very disappointing, to say the least. Yeah. Congratulations. Nice to see you again. Congratulations on your review in the Wall Journal. Thank you. And I, I very much follow and understand the beginning and the end of your talk, but I need to help in the middle. So, uh, if you are to finish on nationalism, bringing us together, having some commonality and civility. Right on, not imposing on other nations. I don't understand where the international nations comes in. I thought the nation unifies people within the nation. But there's no problem for nationalists to say, I'm going to destroy the other country, because they're not part of my nation. So that's where, that's that, where Australia comes internationally. I need to help. Sure. Um, well, I, I bring a number of sources for, for, for this issue in the book. Um, it, it's an important question and it's, a, it's an astute question because um, if, you, if you take a look, a lot of people say to me, you're, you're distinguishing between nationalism and imperialism, but when you take a look at the way that empires are actually run, they're almost always run by some nation. Right? It, it, it's, it, it, in other words, since people um, are 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 uh, loyal to first and foremost to their family, their tribe, the people who speak like them, people who have a common tradition with them. What that means is that if you decide, let's say that you decide that you want to go out and conquer a quarter of the world, how are you going to govern that? Most of the people you're conquering are are going to want to resist, so you'll need people who are loyal to you to help you. And the way it's almost always done. I mean, I don't know if I'll be sorry teaching imperialist techniques here, but the way it's almost always done is you convince your own nation that uh, whether for ideology or for personal benefit, usually both, that it would just be best if we, since we know how to rule the world, and other people are don't because they're barbarians, if we just go out and conquer them, and then we will rule them. And then every single one of these empires uh, they, they, they bring in some percentage of, of, of locals who they sort of make honorary members of the, of the ruling nation. It, 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 it's almost always the same formula. But still, there's some nation that's ruling. So it doesn't matter that, that, that the Germans include some French and so on, because it, 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 everybody still understands that the Germans are in charge in Europe and so on. And the same is true for all other empires. So the question is, given, given that reality, What's, what is it that, 
distinguishes nationalism from imperialism. Many people want to tell me there is no difference. Nationalism just is imperialism. It's just what, you know, once, once the nationalists get successful enough, then they just want to conquer the world. And I, I think the question is, is well placed, but I think that it simply is referring to a different phenomenon than the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about nations who read the Bible and believe it doesn't just have to be nations. It can be individuals. I mean, we find we find this kind of argument, um, uh, for example, uh, uh, Herder has an argument like this. Hume has an argument like this. Even Montesquieu's argument that uh, that uh, large his famous argument that large sprawling nations uh, can't work is in the end a an anti-imperialist argument. And the the heart of the argument is to say is the understanding. And here I'm simply going to assert that many people in history have understood this, um, that when your people has to take on the occupation, the rule, the, the imposition of your ways on many other distant nations, what happens to your leadership, and when I say your leadership, I don't mean just, you know, the, the top 20 people, although that's draws, I'm talking about the entire ruling elite of the country, all of the most educated and most powerful people get sucked into having their minds turned to an infinite series of problems of how to deal with the problems of other nations. There is, this, is, this is true whether your intentions are, are, are good or evil. Either way, your mind has to go to where the problems are. And th th that's the reason people like Hume and Herder describe empire as being fragile, which is kind of a strange thing. We think the opposite. They describe it as, as an absurd, frail thing because the people governing immediately have to begin investing their resources in thinking about everyone else's problems, usually very often problems that they themselves have caused. You get sucked into this kind of being a mafia boss on the other side of the planet and then when somebody from your own people comes to you and says, look, we have problems we need to deal with at home, you don't see it. It seems unimportant. It seems so small in comparison to ruling the world. And I, I dare say that both among Democrats and among Republicans in Washington today, you know people like this. You know people who, whose good intentions notwithstanding their liberal imperialism means that they spend all of their time chattering about what's happening in other places, and they can't see right in front of their noses what's what's happening to their own people. Well, did, did, how many times did I answer? Okay. Yes. Hello. My name is Zima, and I'm um, I came to Washington. Originally, I'm from Barcelona, from Catalonia. And um, as you know, you know, we're going through a self-determination movement, which had a bit of a rocky political. Um, Outcome last, last fall. And I wanted to know um, your opinion about this contradiction in, within Europe of uh, being maybe the place where national state maybe define itself in a more peaceful way, and, and the current situation now where the attempts of self determination, like Catalonia or even the Brexit, are being so uh, badly treated by, by the established states of Europe. And how do you view that? And um, how do you? Well, I, I think I think this is a very old story. I mean, to to, to begin with, notice that uh, that having 
the, having the, the different nations crumble into ever smaller pieces, right? I mean, it, I, I don't know enough about Catalonia to know whether it should or shouldn't be in, in, independent. I spent some time in, in Scotland a few years ago and I was, I, I went in, you know, like Braveheart and, and all of that. And I was like, you know, Scottish independence, but then I spent a few weeks there. And I, I talked, whether I was talking to professors or, or people who owned restaurants, I, I, I couldn't find anyone who could give me a coherent explanation for why Scotland would be better off independent. And so after I spent a few weeks there, I came away thinking maybe it's just not such a good idea because nobody could explain to me why do it. But that is an aside. N notice that crumbling a nation into pieces, first into tribes, and then after that each tribe into clans, and then each clan into family, independent, independent families, each one with its own foreign policy, each one at war with the others, that, that, is the, that works wonderfully with the aim of universal empire. Because the more crumbling there is, the more the, the uh, rulers of the, you know, with the imperial aspirations, in, in, in this case, uh, in, in, in Brussels, the more they say, look, look, Humanity can't, there's no way to create unified nations. It's impossible. It's an impossibility. Uh, we're too diverse. We're too, we're, we're, there's too much of a multiplicity. We're too individualistic. So there simply has to be one empire to, to impose rules on, on, on everyone. That, that transition in, in European talk happens all the time. And, and by the way, most of the Scots who I talked to, where they really lost me was when they started telling me that they wanted to be independent from England, but they, they, they wanted to join the European Union. And then I said, I, I don't know what this is about. Okay, but, but just one second. So the, the, um, the important point here is think about a spectrum of political allegiance from independent families and clans which is kind of, you know, like what you see Abraham going and doing in, in the land of Israel. He's basically, his family has an independent foreign policy together with some, some allies, going up through tribes and nations, and then all the way out to empire, which is an attempt to unify everything. Okay, so notice that the nation is in the middle. It's a balance point. It's a, it's a mean. That's the reason that there, there, there's, no, there's no mechanical, mathematical answer to the question, should the Scots be independent. It's, it's, a, it, it's, it's a very much a question of balancing between, between extremes. In a case, I'll, I'll tell you a case that I'm, I'm familiar with uh, more than others. In the case of the Kurds, you're talking about a people that has been persecuted and massacred for centuries by the Turks, by the Iranians, by the Arabs, and and they, they have, they have a, a, an extraordinary tradition going back all the way to the Medes. And if, if of 30 million people with, uh, with that kind of tradition and who've suffered through that kind of thing, if they're not a candidate for independence, then I don't know who is. But if you, if you come and say, um, you know, what specifically about, uh, about the Scots, there, there is no simple answer to the question. If, if they're capable of flourishing as part of the United Kingdom, which as an outsider knowing not enough about it, it seems to me that they, they have been for centuries, then, then maybe it's not such a good idea. Yeah, you're, uh, oh, 
My name is Yaroslav Martinuk, and I'm from Radio Liberty in Paris. In Europe. Uh, first of all, uh, your book is much welcome and long overdue. Thank you. And uh, I agree with you almost completely about the fact that there is a positive side to nationalism. And I think it's best reflected in, you mentioned Herder, and some of Herder's uh, views of nationalism. It's simply love of your country, your history, your people, and language, you know. Uh, the, the point that it uh, stops being uh, liberal nationalism is when it, when it leaves its borders and tries to impose its views on other neighboring people, okay? And, uh, there's one, um, one, one good example of what, what you said, uh, uh, that nationalism uh, is often created by a shared enemy. And I, I'd like to uh, point out the case of, of Ukraine, where uh, since 1991, Ukraine has been independent, but it has been divided. The moment Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, it unified the country like Putin unified the country more than any that they could have unified in the last 300 years. Um, and um, I also I like what you said, you know, that uh, there, there is no prior empire that was ever democratic. Democratically, that's, that's brilliant. Now, uh, just uh, in closing, I, I uh, want to say that your views uh, remind me of what Anne Applebaum wrote in one of her pieces. She said, before you can have... Are you sure? <laughs> well, I, I, I was surprised. I was surprised. Before you can have democracy, you have to have nationalism. I, I was... Yes. Okay, but there, there, there is a similar view. The Kantians also say... Before you can have democracy, you have to have nationalism. But what they mean, and I don't know what what Applebaum means, but what the, okay. but but there's a very common view that says first you need to. Uh, uh, Kant descri describes this very clearly. There's a very common view that says first we begin as tribes, every every family, every clan killing the others, then we achieve a certain amount of enlightenment, and we unify as nations. We stop the wars among the clans, and then we have a nation, and we have wars among the nations. So then the final step, which Kant calls moral maturity, is when you realize that the same step then needs to be taken again to eliminate all the nations, so there won't be any war among them. There'll be a single law from a single center and a single power. Now, someone who believes that, thinks the exact opposite from what I think, but they might say, first you need nations and then and, and then you reach moral maturity. That's the reason that that these liberal imperialist friends of mine are so often excited about national independence in the third world or uh, uh, or, or among the, the, the Arabs or someplace that they think is barbaric. And this is sometimes very close to racism, that they, they just think, well, those people they say they're not capable of self-determination. We have to allow them to move up the, you know, first to reach self-determination, and then they'll they'll get enlightenment, and then they can be part of, you know, of 
of the inter International European Union. Okay. Yeah. Sir, thank you for uh, your, your talk. I'm probably the opposite of what you said. Uh, as an Irishman who spent four years in the Netherlands, spending $3,000 a year on my undergraduate degree, spending one year in Paris. How much did you spend? 3000 US dollars per year on my undergraduate degree. Wow. That's quite common across the European Union. So, so, you, so you, you, you probably don't resent academia as much as I do. Well, I, I would not come <laughs> to, shall we say, the highest level of college. However, college was accessible to someone like me who perhaps didn't spend enough time in the library in high school. Um, and having spent one year in Paris and having just arrived in DC on Monday, I, I disagree with kind of the words you use to describe the European Union. I do not think it is perfect by any means. Uh, however, as someone who has been a direct benefit of harmonized rules and regulations, um, benefits of travel on known towns that become accessible and uh, tourism flourishes. And I spent six years getting a train to high school 45 minutes over 45 minutes back. 90 million euro of that of the money that was invested came from the European Union. And the European Union makes significant investments in lots of infrastructure projects across the EU. You mentioned Greece. Uh, you mentioned Greece and, and uh, the Georgia. I do think that they were treated quite badly. Uh, Many, many years suffered from chronic uh, corruption and bad administration and poor governance. Um, I wanted to ask you in terms of, I mean, I'm someone who, you know, I work in international organization, the European, all that. Um, with the upcoming challenges facing the world, such as climate change and artificial intelligence and cybercrime and so on, I wanted to ask how you think nationalism will deal with those issues and will they deal with those issues better than uh, collective communication, European Union, international organizations, and so on? Sure. Well, look, for, first of all, I, I, um, I, I'm not, I, I don't mean to be insulting. Don't I mean, what, no, no, well, I haven't said it yet. Okay, no, I, 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 I'm going to say something that's going to sound just, just a, a little bit mean, but but I I don't I don't mean it mean land. I just I really don't understand. I I very often get to speak to uh, to people roughly your age who've grown up in in Europe, and I would say invariably almost invariably, the, the first thing they start talking about is how much they've benefited from being able to travel to different countries and go to different towns that they didn't know. And I just, it, I, I just find it remarkable, and if, if you want to respond, to, you, you can, but I find it astonishing that people should think that in, in all the previous ages of the world, people couldn't go to other towns and other countries and uh, and and benefit from from being in them. I mean, if if you read the the, the classics, Greek, Jewish, Roman, what people people are 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 traveling all the time. And we're just not talking about that issue. That's not the question on the table. The question is, is there such a thing that's desirable as a diversity of uh, of traditional legal institutions, a diversity of cultures that are not simply superficially diverse, but are profoundly diverse among mankind 
so that we understand that that's, that's a good that, that, that we would like to support. If that's a good, then in order to pursue it, we have to allow different countries to pursue different things. That means that sometimes they will be wrong. Now, I don't have any problem with, with I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you, you can, you don't have any problem recognizing that, that you know, may, maybe the Germans were wrong in their treatment of Greece. But the, the, the issue I'm putting on the table is, why should we be in a position of having to argue about whether the Germans were right or wrong in determining what kind of government is going to take place in Greece? Wouldn't we be better off if the Greeks made their mistakes for themselves, and then if they screwed it up, then, then, then everyone could look and see that, that, that the experiment that the Greeks pursued was, was unfortunately disastrous. Why does an experiment have to be over dozens of nations? Traditionally, Anglo-American uh, Anglo tradition has recognized that wherever you want freedom, you need to allow multiple centers of power. So people are, are taught this in, in high school with regard to the, to the government of a single state, that there should be multiple branches of, of government that compete with one another and represent different interests, because only in, in, in the competition do you prevent there being from an, such an accumulation of power that one branch becomes tyrannical and imposes itself on everyone. The same thing is true internationally. If you work consistently to eliminate the multiplicity of powers, as, as I, I quote Vettel in my book, he's a, a crucial thinker that unfortunately people don't seem to remember so well these days, 17th century uh, political theorist, one of the founders of international law. His argument is the multiplicity of nations, the reason that we maintain the balance of power, the reason that we prevent consistently the conquest of one nation over the others is so that there will not be a single law imposed on everyone because that eliminates competition, diversity, and ultimately freedom. It's a formula for eliminating freedom. That's, that's the objection. Do you want to respond to my insulting objection? Mm -hmm. I've, people have said far more insulting things to me. I wanted to just, um, the question, the end of what I was, was with the upcoming challenges facing everyone around the world, whether it's, it's climate change, whether it's the, the incredible transformation going through with artificial intelligence. I, 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 I remember, yes. So I, I'll just say this very simply. The idea that any major problem in, I mean, you're talking about, about huge problems in, uh, that combine problems in science with problems in political theory with, with economics and so on. Historically, problems in science and problems in political theory have been resolved to the extent that they are ever resolved. They are resolved by the competition among independent nations. Uh, Newton competing against Descartes out of a belief that Cartesian rationalism is a French corruption and an abomination, and that the English need to save thought for mankind, or, or, or the, if you like the universities, then you could say the, the Prussians looking at the decay, decadent university system as it existed in Europe prior to the Prussians coming to save academia. I mean, you can take that either direction, but this kind of competition is what creates the possibility of 
breakthrough ideas, new initiatives, new ways of thinking. All the last thing we need facing large-scale problems that affect the entire planet, the last thing we need is a single centralized bureaucracy that one government for the world is going to sit there with its groupthink and come up with one answer. Right? If, if we do that, then for sure we'll never solve the problems you're talking about. Uh, yes. Uh, would you care to comment about rising China, which is imperialism? Uh, good question. Um, look, uh, Ch China is a very interesting example. It's uh, it, 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 it was certainly imperialist in you know in, in some stage. I don't know enough about uh, domestically the the extent to which uh, China has completed or has not completed the uh, the, the cultural assimilation of the many peoples that that were once conquered. Today, I don't know. In other words, I, I, don't, I don't know enough to say, but I, I would be happy to hear other people know more about this than I do. I don't know enough to say whether, uh, whether China is capable of looking itself, at, at itself as something that's close, closer at this point to a national state or whether its goal is to rule the world. Um, it, it's uh, beyond my it's it's beyond my knowledge, but let me, let me just emphasize. I'm not claiming that national states are not aggressive. They are, but people are aggressive. And and since I'm not trying to solve for the problem of of human beings being aggressive, I'm not saying that you're not going to get aggressive nation states. If you have a world of independent nations, some of them will be more aggressive than others. The the claim that I'm making is that the interests of a nation are primarily the kinds of wars that nation, national states get into, um, the, the, the English versus the Irish, the Jews versus the Arabs, the, uh, the, the, the Indians versus Pakistanis, and so on and so on. Those, those kinds of conflicts, they may be terrible, they may be dangerous, and they, they, they cause immense suffering and damage and harm, but they're extremely small in comparison to the kinds of wars which you have when someone starts talking about how the entire world should be governed. So if, if you take the Thirty Years' War, right, which is a, an attempt to maintain a Catholic vision for governing the entire world, or at least Europe and probably the world from there, or Napoleon's vision, where the goal is French Enlightenment is the only thing that can rule the world. It must be French Enlightenment. It, which brought millions of people to their deaths, or, or Nazism, or communism. These are, are visions of how the world should be, and they cause, they bring people to be willing to sacrifice millions, tens of millions, a hundred million people could be, for the sake of implementing this global vision, which is seen as salvation. Okay, now I, I can't tell you whether the Chinese right now are still in, in the throes of the old communist global vision enough so that that's, that's their goal, or are, are they retrenching and receding into something that's closer to what we would consider to be a national state. They could still be very aggressive locally, but that doesn't mean that they're about to sacrifice the world in order to bring about communist utopia. 
which I think is the most dangerous thing. And I, I will leave determining the answer to the, to the China expert. Uh, you want me to turn around? Five minutes, got it, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Uh, I'm sorry, no, can't. So my name is Stanislav Dominski. I'm Polish. I'm here for a national, uh, in a postgraduate uh, national security school, John and Logan. Um, my first uh, remark is the European nationalism and the European Union. So first of all, we can all say that the European Union has contributed um, to a certain extent to well-being of, of Europe after the war, but I think that most Europeans uh, were not okay with the fact that it's turning to a bureaucratic bubble tower uh, before our eyes, and and that uh, it is it is ideologically liberal, and it punishes all the countries that have slightly different views on how um, policies should be conducted. Because I think that at the beginning Europe was about uh, Alliance of Nations and was focused on trade. But then increasingly you had all those laws more liberal and liberal, and that created a huge disconnect between the people and the political elite, especially that most of the European officials are unelected bureaucrats, uh, for most of them. So the legitimacy of this project has gone down. Germany has taken over the project and, uh, and is trying to punish a lot of countries that are not in their line. They use the European Commission to, to attack, well, to punish my country, Hungary, and even to a certain extent, uh, France. France, unfortunately, got to a point where it is right now because of its own, um, let's say, deficit. I would say. So I am thankful for the European project, as uh, I was born in a political refugee family in, in France, and we moved back, and all we wanted is, is to join the European Union in the early 90s until the early 2000s. But now we can see that, uh, you know, when you talk about nationalism in Poland, and you use the term in the, Euro in the European sense, because I wouldn't say in Europe I'm a nationalist because they would say I'm a fascist right away. I define myself as a patriot. In America, you don't have that problem because uh, you, do, you, don't, you didn't have... Uh, Americans have imported it yeah. from Hungary. Yeah. In a way. Um, so my, my point is that... Um, uh, we are going to, we are having basically, and that comes back to your, your point about um, why people are increasingly uh, behaving uh, in a, let's say, uncivilized manner. And it, it's, it's because we're having two tribes that are being created right now, and they just read the content, content newspapers they like, and the internet, social media is helping them revive. We're having two clans talking different languages. And and we're ha and, and and the core problem of that is that we're having uh, elites and, and especially a language which is less and less um, about the common culture and, and good education. When when you talked about the 19th century, I'm just I'm ending my point. Um, you should give me five five minutes. Yes, sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, the 19th this century, is the elites were stern hand that's trying to end. In the 19th century, the elites were basically aristocrats. What's your question? To be part of the elite, if you 
were a bourgeois, for example, you wanted to imitate those people. Nowadays, uh, you have you have grotesque um, uh, people that that think that they can act that this way because television is is actually enhancing their. Okay, look. I'm going to say something very important. I, I hope you'll take it home and think about it. There have always been grotesque people. They're not created by any kind of current thing that's taking place. Our records are filled with them. Human beings are not going to become perfect. They're not going to become angels. Our goal is to try to come up with something that is as much as possible tolerable. Now, what's surprising to me about your comments is that when you describe um, the European Union, um, you describe all the negative things about it, you describe it just the way I do. Right? The things that you say you don't like about the European Union are exactly the same things I don't like about the European Union. Uh, the the, 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 the uh, non-representative uh, non government, imposition of, uh, of, uh, of a liberal straitjacket in terms of what people are allowed to think and what countries are allowed to do, the, 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 the ridiculous bureaucracy and so that's exactly my critique of it. But the European Union has always been like that, right? Since the European Union was created. Now you're talking about an earlier period when there were still independent countries in Europe. Before, you're talking about the 1950s and the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s, when, when someone like de Gaulle or, or later Thatcher, when, when, when de Gaulle could talk or Thatcher could talk about a Europe of nations, they meant a Europe of independent nations and they wanted economic collaboration. And how can I object to something like that? Try it, if it works, if it's good for people, do it. But that's not the same thing as, as taking away the, the legal and economic and, and, and religious sovereignty, independence of countries. So it seems to me that we, we actually agree more than you're, you're allowing, because the moment you go from a cooperative Europe of nations, which I you know, only think good things about, well, that's not completely true, but which I mostly think good things about the way that, that you do, and we, we move towards the, uh, the expropriation of national independence from the different countries and, and, and its relegation to an imperial center, the moment we get there, that's the European Union. It, it even changed its name. It got a flag. It got a currency. The European Union is exactly what you don't like. And you're right. Thank you.